You may be seated, church. Welcome. We're glad you guys are here. Thank you for choosing to worship with us today at Red Tree Church. Whether you are here in person or joining us online or engaging in this at a later date, we are glad you chose to worship with us today. I want to make you guys aware of a couple things. The first one is this. If you're unaware, welcome to Red Tree Church. We're just a little church that believes that the gospel of Jesus changes lives and changes the world. And I know that's like if you're here every week, you hear us say some form of that over and over and over. And the reason is because we genuinely believe that. We genuinely believe that Jesus is the answer to what ails the human soul. That when you wrap your life around the person and the work of Jesus, that it changes you, that it actually makes a way from death to life, that it actually makes a way of freedom from the curse that death has imposed, that sin has imposed upon us. We believe that those who have found life and freedom in Jesus are called to come together as the family of Jesus and to actually intermingle their lives and their souls together and that the family of Jesus goes out into the world and participates with Jesus on his mission. Jesus' family mission, this is kind of the core of who we are as a church. Everything we try and do comes back to these truths because when it gets down to it, we genuinely believe in our bones that the gospel of Jesus changes human hearts and changes the world. Amen? If you're going to be worshiping through giving today, you probably know how to do that. If you don't, for some reason, come talk to me or Jesse, one of the pastors will help you do that. You can do it through the app or the website or mail a check or do one of those things. If you want to learn more about our church, you can easily do that online, redtreechurch.org. Uh, that'll bring you to a landing page. It can take you to the website where you can learn about our church, read our history, see those sorts of things. Or you can go to a thing called the Central Hub where you can click on next steps and you can see different stuff going on in the life of our church. We have a women's retreat coming up. We have um, a couple things like that. If you want to get plugged into gospel community, we genuinely believe the majority of the life of the church happens in the context of community and gospel communities. If you are not in a gospel community, please reach out to me. I would love to help get you plugged into community or discipleship in some way uh, so that you can be challenged by the Word of God uh, to grow in dependence on the gospel. Again, you can check that stuff out online, or you can just reach out to one of the pastors. We would love to hear from you guys. If you're visiting with us today, we do have a present for you uh, on the table where you came in, right, uh, right by the door, leaving the building. There's some coffee mugs and some stickers. You're welcome to grab those. Uh, we don't ask you to give us any personal information or anything like that. We're not trying to make a, a transaction with you uh, for a welcome gift. We just want to thank you for coming to worship with us today. And we got a big old box of these coffee mugs, so you should take one and you should drink coffee out of it and it'll be great. Um, I'm trying to think if I've skipped anything. Oh, uh, this coming Saturday, uh, we have our one, another one-night event. We've been doing a couple of these one-night events recently. Uh, we're going to be talking about how the gospel speaks into singleness. So if you are in this space, if this is your church home and you are not married, uh, then this is for you. So we would love for you to be a part of that. You can find more about that if you go to the Central Hub, Next Steps, you can register for it, or you can just reach out to me or one of the pastors. We would love uh, to help you get plugged into that. Uh, my wife Kim and I will be leading that this Saturday night in this space. Bring your dinner, hang out. It'll be, it'll be fun. It'll, it'll be cool. So that's that. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to take a minute to pray uh, for one of our missional partners. 
Uh, every now and then we do this. We set aside, we have different ministries uh, and churches that as a church we support. We set aside a chunk of our giving to uh, speak into just gospel work around our community, around the world. We're going to pray for First Light Ministries. If you don't know them, they are a sexual integrity ministry based here in St. Louis that helps um, men and women and families and single people, anyone who's dealing with the effects of compulsive, sinful sexual behavior, whether that is people who are acting out, family members of people who are acting out, anything like that, um, they provide a biblical gospel help to find freedom in those areas, to find healing. It's a really, really powerful thing. They're actually the group that trained our pastors so that we could launch our own sexual integrity group in-house here at Red Tree. Uh, we're great fans of them. So we're going to pray for First Light, pray specifically for Sean Manny, who's the director of First Light, um, just as, man, it's, it's a, you guys know this, but that's a huge need, uh, that that ministry never runs out of waiting list uh, for people who need help. And so we're going to pray God's blessing over them. We're going to pray uh, for gospel freedom over the people who are plugged in that ministry. Join with me, and then we'll jump into the Word. Father God, thank you so much for the gift to come together to sit in a dry room and sing praises to you while it thunders and lightning and rain sprays outside and we can see the display of your majesty and your power. You're so good to us, God. You're so good to us. Lord, before we continue on in our space, we want to take a minute and pray your blessing over First Sight Ministries here in St. Louis, Lord. We, we just know that the curse has affected people in really intense and powerful ways, through decisions they've made and, and through things that have been done to them, God. And so we pray very specifically, Holy Spirit, your anointing and your blessing over First Light Ministries and all the groups they're running for people who are dealing with the results of sexual brokenness and sexual sin, God. We pray for freedom. We pray for healing. We pray for your word to go forward, to draw people into freedom and into life. God, we pray for Sean and his family, that you would bless them, protect them as they seek to lead out in this ministry. God, we pray for all those who are serving in that ministry, facilitating groups, walking with people, carrying their burdens and their brokenness, God. Pray your blessing, your perseverance on them. Lord, we genuinely believe that when you described your ministry, that when you said you came here to set captives free, that you meant it. So Lord, we ask humbly that you would do that work in our midst that we would get to see it and celebrate it. We love you, Jesus. We are grateful for this space, grateful for this family. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All righty. We are jumping into Acts. I had to keep the church operating again for another week without Chris and Craig. So the fact that we're all here right now is a miracle of the Lord. This building is not burned down. There were people to play music. Guys, I'm feeling pretty good about it. Uh, almost like a grown-up. It's great. Um, we're going to be continuing our series in Acts today. If you want to go ahead and turn there, we're going to be in Acts chapter 15. I'm excited to get to this, and so I don't have much in the way of preamble. Um, I've been uh, just eagerly expecting this time with you, church, as we take a few minutes to read this text, hear from the Lord, and talk about the grace of our God. If you were with us last week, uh, or two weeks ago, last week we had a guest preacher, two weeks ago when we were in Acts, uh, we spent the whole time talking about the cost of discipleship. And we talked about how following after Christ brings with it a price tag. 
That to follow after Christ is to experience suffering. It is to experience opposition. That the promise of Jesus is cross now and crown later. And if you were here, right, like it was pretty intense. It was a pretty heavy thing to sit through and weigh through together. And so it's part of why I'm so excited for tonight. Because tonight we talk about the other side of that coin, which is to follow Jesus is to be a recipient of the grace of our God. So we talked about the cost of discipleship, and tonight we're going to talk about the amazing, deep life, soul-changing benefits of discipleship. Sound good? We got a long text today, so bear with me. Join in here. We're in Acts chapter 15, starting in the first verse. I think we actually have it on the screens for tonight. It says this, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem (coughs) to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order that they keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles, so take from them a people to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who were called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble these Gentiles to turn to God but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from that which has been strangled and from blood. Yet from ancient generations, Moses has been had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them and send them in Antioch, send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, With the following letter, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings. 
Since we have heard that some persons have gone from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no such instructions. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from that which has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. I told you it was a long one. Pray with me, church, before we dig into this. Father, we ask this evening that you would be our discipler. Illuminate the text on our behalf. Speak to us what our hearts need to hear. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would humble us, that you would soften our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears, that we might be the kind of people who are open and receptive to your teaching. Encourage us, challenge us, but God, ultimately, let us leave here tonight having heard from you what our souls actually need. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So here's what I'd like to do tonight. I want to I get us kind of in this story. It's a, it's a long text, and so it's easier with a longer text, a longer narrative to kind of zone out a little bit and lose some of the details. I want to get us into this story so that we kind of can hold it in our heads at once. There's a couple cultural pieces here that I think are maybe a little easy to gloss over and misunderstand. So I'll point out a couple of those pieces and, and, and I think there's some cool challenges for us in that. But ultimately, I think we're really going to spend our time focusing on this bold declaration of Peter about the gospel, which is that we are saved by the grace of God. And we're gonna, that's going to lead us to one of Jesus's most famous images he gave for the grace of God. And, and I mean, the end point here is just to end out celebrating how good God has been to us, to give us some time to reflect on the depth of grace. And I, I think the reason that's important for us today is because grace is such a churchy word. It's such a churchy word that we sing and say and throw in our prayers and our conversations and our small groups so easily that we, we miss, we lose the depth of it, the weight of it, the power of it. I think that'll be good for us this evening to, to take something as simple as foundational as the grace of God, reflect on it, think about it for a moment, and just see how God uses that to lead us to worship. Sound good? Rock and roll. So remember, we're stepping into an existing narrative at this point, right? So Paul and Barnabas have just finished their first missionary journey. They, they've traveled out of Antioch, which is kind of north and just a little bit east of Jerusalem, and they've traveled up into what's modern-day Turkey, ancient Galatia, and they've taken this journey going from city to city, preaching the gospel and planting churches. They've faced insane levels of opposition and oppression from the demonic to the to physical and the violent, and they've come back 
to their home church at Antioch, and they're celebrating God's faithfulness. They roll back into Antioch. Remember, Antioch like set these two men apart and prayed over them and sent them to the work. And they leave and they travel around the Roman world and they come back however many months later and they report back. This is what God has done. We saw him move in power. He did miracles. I mean, Paul died and like it was wild. I mean, you can, you can just imagine, right, how this went down as they come back. I don't know if Paul actually died, but, but you get what I'm saying, right? Like how you can imagine just the excitement and the power and the drama of them sharing all these testimonies of what God has been doing on this journey. And to sit at the end of it and for them to go, listen, church, There are six churches, six churches operating with pastors and elders and believers sharing communion and proclaiming the gospel and engaging their communities that didn't exist before. That's insane. I mean, can you imagine the joy that goes with that testimony of that church sitting there going, I remember the night when we were all hanging out and praying and worshiping and the Holy Spirit was like, send out Paul and Barnabas. And I was like, I don't know, that seems like a bad idea, but okay. And then we did it and now you're back in six churches? That's insane. But that's what happened. I hope, I hope you can like draw yourself into the joy this church is feeling, Right? And then we get to our text, and the bubble gets popped. And these folk come to visit the church from Jerusalem, and they're like, oh, cool, yeah, cool testimony, cool, oh, yeah, yeah, Gentile churches, that's awesome, that's awesome. Yeah, so they got circumcised, right? And you can imagine them sitting there going, what are you talking about? And it tells us that these teachers begin to say, well, I mean, they're not really saved, that they're not circumcised, Right? And they bring this dispute to the church. And by the way, this is an important dispute. This is a real doctrinal disagreement. One of the first large, divisive doctrinal disagreements that engage the church of Jesus. And it essentially comes down to this question. Does someone have to convert to Judaism in order to convert to Christianity? Because all of the original church, the original Jerusalem church, they all started out Jewish and then became Christian. But starting with Cornelius and now spread all over Galatia, we have all these people who've never been Jewish. And by the way, it's not even that they haven't heard of Judaism. They knew about Judaism and were like, not my thing. And they heard about Jesus and were like, oh, I'm I'm down for this. So this this is a unique beast. And so these teachers come along and they say, no, 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 you can't just jump straight to Jesus. You have to convert to Judaism first. Now, you can imagine how much this just bursts the bubble of this church. How how sorrowful that would be. Because they're not just questioning the salvation of all these people in all these churches that Paul and Barnabas have traveled around, really when it gets down to it by saying, well, you know, none of those people are actually saved. What you're really saying is that Paul and Barnabas's whole mission was really wasted and the message they were proclaiming was not complete, which really means the discernment that church had to set those men aside for the mission was foolish and wrong because the gospel they proclaimed wasn't complete. I mean, that's intense. As you can imagine, Paul and Barnabas are not super down with this, right? It says they debated with them. They're going, no, there's no way. There's no way. And you can just see them going back and forth and back and forth. 
And all this comes together with finally the church saying, we got to get this settled. You guys need to go down to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem. You need to talk to the apostles, talk to the elders, and we got to figure this out. I mean, we just sent you guys on this massive journey, and if we did it wrong, we need to know about that. So they get Paul and Barnabas, they get a group of people, and they send them to Jerusalem. Now, by the way, by the way, I've said this a couple times, but I'll say it here. I would strongly encourage you this week in your personal devotional reading, grab Galatians and read it beginning to end. And here's the reason, reason why. Paul wrote Galatians right around the time of this text. Paul wrote Galatians right after he finished his first missionary journey. And the letter of Galatians is written to these churches that Paul and Barnabas started on this first missionary journey. And he spends time in Galatians 2 describing this exact story from his perspective. And as you can guess, his perspective, him being Paul, is pretty spicy. So it's, it's just good to get that piece of it. But, but it, seriously, I would strongly encourage you, it would take you maybe an hour, maybe a little more than that, just to sit down, block out some time, read it beginning to end. Because it really does, it just fills in some of what we've been reading narratively by giving you an eye into what's going on behind the scenes with this, this godly man who is seeking to love and serve these believers. Anyway, so they, they make their way up to Jerusalem and they get into this debate and everyone gets into it. Now, he, there's a couple things about this scene that I think are really important. The first one is we have to acknowledge that this is a real and important doctrinal dispute. And here's kind of, kind of the stakes, as it were, in all of this. There's no arguing at this point that God is saving Gentiles. I mean, God gave a vision directly to Peter, right? Everyone saw Cornelius and his family. Peter was there and saw the Holy Spirit come upon that family, just like he did at Pentecost, right? God has borne witness, yes, I'm in the business of saving Gentiles. So when Paul and Barnabas come and share this testimony, we traveled around, the Holy Spirit was there, it was wild. He like banished a demon guy for us and he was saving all these people. Like when they start sharing these stories, no one is debating that. What they're saying is, of course, God is doing this work of saving Gentiles. The question comes down to, what do we do with these Gentiles? How do we include them into the church? Because the established understanding of the text at that point led them to the place of conversionism. Now, let me talk about what I mean by that. You notice as we get into the story, when they get to Jerusalem, two things happen. Everyone is excited to see Paul and Barnabas and the people from Antioch. Everyone is celebrating the testimonies of what God has done. Like there's unity in this, even in the midst of a major doctrinal dispute, right? They're together, they're family, but they get into it over this issue. And you notice that the people who stand up, who are making the biggest fuss, the text says that they are pharisaical. They're part of the party of the Pharisees. Now, if you've been around church long enough, you've heard that word, usually in a pretty negative sense, right? Like that's usually the bad guy in a Jesus story where he tells the Pharisees how terrible they are. But we have to understand the Pharisees with a little bit of a broader cultural lens to really understand what's going on here. You see, remember, Judaism, or first off, you have to remember, the church does not have the New Testament, right? It's very easy for us 
to go, you don't have to circumcise your kid. You don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian because we have the New Testament. We have the part where Paul's like, hey, don't do that. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. It's right there. But they don't have that. They have the Old Testament and that's it. And the problem with the Old Testament, if you go back and read it, is it doesn't say much about conversion. The Old Testament isn't terribly concerned with what it looks like to convert to Judaism. And so even though there are references, especially in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, about how an outsider can participate in the blessing and the covenant of God's people, there are no instructions for how a Gentile can convert to Judaism. Add into that the mess that the Old Testament makes no allowances for the state of Israel at the time of the early church. The Old Testament was written for ancient Israel. That was a sovereign nation under Yahweh with a godly king and an established priesthood. When Babylon came in and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple of Solomon, the entire worship system of the Old Testament broke into pieces. It doesn't work, right? I mean, all the laws about sacrifice involve priests making sacrifices. All the laws about purity involve engaging priests at the temple for the sake of like securing and affirming purity, and all of that goes away. This is what gives rise to the school of thought or the school of theology known as Phariseeism. The Pharisees were one of several groups of different of theologians, kind of different schools of thought, who were basically saying, how do we stay Jewish now that there's no longer a temple? Now that we're spread all over the world, now that we're not a sovereign nation, what does it mean to follow this text and be Jewish? And the Pharisees landed on this really interesting thought. They said this, essentially. We are the way we are because we broke our covenant with God. The Pharisees said, look at the text. Israel broke covenant with God. We did not obey the law as he gave it to us. And so he broke our nation and broke our temple and spread us out as punishment, divine judgment on our sin. So if we want God to restore Israel, the answer is to keep covenant. And everyone said, cool, makes sense. How the heck do we do that? We don't have a temple. We don't have priests. And so the Pharisees sat down and said, we've got to figure out a way for a man and a woman to live as Jews spread out over the world with no temple and no good worship system. And so they started writing commentaries and thoughts and different rules. And they started adding up kind of this collective wisdom to say, here's how we can live as ethical and as holy of a life as possible without ancient Israel in place without the king, without the temple, without all of those things. And their whole idea was, if all of Israel can show God how repentant we are through our holy and ethical living, then he will restore the blessing of the covenant and he will bring back Israel and he will conquer Babylon slash Persia slash Greece slash Rome and he will make us a nation and the people again. And so the Pharisees pushed the people to say, you must live disciplined and holy lives so that God can see that you, you desire to be in covenant with him. Because when you, when you take man-made traditions and you add it on to the word of God, it does two things. 
It builds a lot of identity. It's really easy if you're the one who's really good at following all the rules to build your identity around being the one who's really good at following all the rules. And the other thing it does is it absolutely crushes joy. I mean, look at this scene. Here's a church celebrating the faithfulness of God to, to bring his gospel forward and, and, and to resurrect the dead unto life and draw people into his kingdom. And these guys come along and go, uh, actually, you didn't get snipped, so you're not in. And just pop that bubble and crush that joy. That's what happens when you inject man-made traditions into the work of God. It, it, it just disrupts your identity and it kills joy. So here's the problem. This church is facing a very real doctrinal division. But it's not like it's, well, God says this in his word, but now he's doing this. What do we do with that? No, 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 no. The division is, well, God is doing this. And we've all said for the last like 200 years that his word means this. And that doesn't go together. You see, these, these pharisaical Christians who've brought the, the tradition of the Pharisees with them into the church are bringing with them hundreds of years of culture and commentary on the Old Testament that says things like, oh, I don't know, really specific rules about how to convert to Judaism with specific terms like God-fearer and convert and Gentile and what those different things mean and the order of when you get circumcised and when you follow, start following the feast days and when you can actually be ritually pure and what your marriage looks like and all these different things. This has been so baked into the Jewish culture for so long that these men are standing up going, but Paul and Barnabas are violating scripture. But they're not. They're not. They're violating the traditions of man. There's nothing in the text, nothing in the text. It says you must be circumcised to receive Christ. Jesus never said that in his ministry. Even when he spent time with Gentiles, I feel like that would be a really important detail, right? But he never brought that. This is, this is man-made tradition added on. It was a real doctrinal dispute. But it's not a dispute between God and the Bible. It's a dispute between the acts of God and a group of people's understanding of the Scripture. And guys, we all know when the work of God and human understanding of Scripture come up against each other face to face, only one of those things wins. It's the movement of God. And the church responds that way, by the way. The church responds in joyful unity, which, by the way, this is a little bit of a, of a side note, but I think it bears being said out loud. I think one of the greatest miracles of this story is that this story happens, that this kind of dispute happens, that these guys walk in and burst their bubble and, and say, I mean, how insulting would that be if you were Paul and Barnabas and you're in here having your church party and these guys walk in and go, um, actually, and yet what do they do? They engage the issue. They work it out. They debate it. They discuss it. They come together in worship and celebration and they work the thing out because unity is important. Unity is worth fighting for. Jesus said, they will recognize you as my followers by how you love one another. And we see this modeled in the midst of an intense dispute. See, we've lost so much of this in the church nowadays because there's a lot of rock-solid gospel-preaching churches all around us in the suburbs of the United States of America. 
So when you have a dispute, whether it's a relational dispute or a doctrinal dispute or a dispute, heaven forbid, a dispute about your preferences, about how church should operate, it's a lot easier to just go, I don't like this, and leave. And go find some place where you do like this. And not fight for unity and not work through the issue and not work through your own half of it. This models against that. It shows us what it looks like to fight for unity in the midst of a really, really intense division, right? So they come together. They fight for unity. The church lands in this beautiful place. We see Peter and James both giving testimony to how faithful God is. Peter comes up and he reminds them of the story of Cornelius that we already read about in Acts chapter 10, I think. He reminds them of this, how how God has already moved, how, how God is the one who actually sees hearts and he saw fit to save Gentiles and give them the same Holy Spirit. And then James comes up and is like, man, I agree with this, which is insane because James is the, the most like conservative practicing Jewish of the church leaders. And he still comes along and goes, man, this isn't just now, like the scripture agrees with this. And he points back to the prophets and says, we should have known God was going to bring the Gentiles in from the, from the very beginning. We can't fight against this. And then I love this line. Why should we burden them? Why should we burden these people who have turned to God? And you can see Paul sitting there with his scars and his bumps going, yeah, it's hard enough. (laughs) It's hard enough without burdens from the inside. And so they write this note. They say, hey, look, there's four things we want you to do. Other than that, you do you. It's good. They write him this note. They send it back with the leaders. They bring it back to the church. The church reads the note. And again, they just break into worship and celebration. The story ends right where it started with the church together celebrating the faithfulness and goodness of God in joy and in worship, which by the way, is a great big invitation to us to remember that conflict is not inherently bad. And that running away from conflict and walking away because it's hard and painful is almost never a good option. They push the conflict and the story ends with more unity and more joy than it began with. Which is a really cool testimony to the goodness of God. I love that. Let's look at that weird little note they gave them. Did you catch that part? I don't know if you thought about this, but, but James tells them they have to do four things with the apostles decide that, hey, we're so glad you Gentiles are believers now. That's awesome. Welcome in. Like, you know, we meet every Wednesday for dinner, I guess. Like, it's cool. But, but listen, there's four things we want you to do. Don't eat any food sacrificed to idols. Don't eat any meat that was strangled. Don't eat any meat with blood in it and, and avoid sexual immorality. Anyway, other than that, welcome. You'll get your membership card in a couple weeks. That's a weird thing, right? And I don't know if you've thought about this. It's a weird thing because most of that list doesn't seem really connected to the actual Old Testament law. I don't know if you caught that, right? Like, wasn't the question, the original question, like, do they have to be Jewish? Do they have to obey the law? What's this thing about strangulation? Like, what is that, right? We don't have time to dig into this super deep today, but, but I do think this is actually important for us. All four of these things are kind of the stereotype that would have been associated with Roman cultic worship. Think of the, like, like these, these, you know, Jesus following, professing conservative Jews living in Jerusalem. If, they, if you sat down and said, hey, so what do the, the Gentiles do when they go and worship pagan gods in the Roman empire? This is like the list they would have come up with. Well, 
they go in there and they strangle cows and cut them up and eat the meat raw as like a celebration of their weird pagan god, and then they have a weird worship orgy. Uh, this is kind of the stereotype of pagan cultic Roman worship, is big feasts that involve big old huge strangled animals that you eat at varying degrees of cookedness, and then a whole bunch of sexual immorality in the form of temple prostitution and those sorts of things. So what's actually being asked of these Gentiles, what they're saying is, hey, look, all we're asking of you is that you make sure your life is set apart from the pagan worship around you. Please make sure that you, you set yourselves apart from the pagan practices of, of, of the Gentile religions. Is that, is that cool? Like, can we agree on that? Now, here's what I love about that. We have no indication that anyone at any of these churches were doing these things. <laughs> That's a pretty big assumption, right? Like they haven't actually met these folk. Because here's the thing. Those rules are in no way binding on believers. I, mean, I don't know, have you guys felt like a deep grieving of the spirit the last time you had like a medium steak? That's literally what it's talking about, is eating meat that you haven't pressed the blood out of. Like letting that, that blood sit in there. These, these are, I mean, sexual immorality, the Bible speaks about that pretty plainly. But with the other three, in fact, you can go and read in 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses this issue very specifically and says, well, I don't care if you eat meat at sacrifice aisles, it's not that big a deal, it's just meat. But here's the actual issue. Here's the actual issue. The Jewish people, especially the conservative Jewish Christians, are struggling with how broad and wide and amazing the grace of God is. And all these new people being brought in. And so the leaders say, hey guys, look, will you be gracious on our behalf? Will you make sure, will you just make sure that you go above and beyond to step away from the pagan life you lived, the pagan life of the world? Which is what Paul says, by the way. He says, it doesn't matter if you eat meat sacrificed to idols. It's just meat. Idols aren't anything. They're just pieces of metal and wood. What matters is your brother and sister in Christ. And if your Christian freedom harms their faithfulness. Because here's the thing, guys. The actual decision of the Jerusalem Council has nothing to do with circumcision. The actual decision handed down to us, Christians today, by the first church council, is that the unity of Jesus' church is more important, more important than your personal Christian liberties and freedoms. It's the actual decision they made. Being together, being one, being one family, overcoming our differences, overcoming our conflicts, that's more important than your individual expressions of Christian liberty. Which is why Paul will go on to say to the Corinthian church, man, if if I knew that eating meat was a stumbling block, I would literally just be a vegetarian. I'd never eat meat again if that was messing up someone else's faith. Which is the challenge they give to this church. And I think that's a beautiful challenge for us to remember, man, conflicts can blow up the church and blow up the work of the kingdom. When we, when we get offended and we feel like people are missing little pieces of our convictions and our doctrines and our, and, our, and our way of doing church and all these different things, and it can blow up so fast. But the Jerusalem Council reminds us, man, it is way better, way better, way better 
to just eat a little humble pie, to just go above and beyond to love your brothers and sisters, and to just trust in the amazing grace of our God. Which wraps us back to what I think is actually the peace of this text for us, the, the place where I want us to bring this together tonight. This is Peter's closing words in the book of Acts. We're actually not going to see Peter for the rest of the book. This is the last little bit he gives us. And what does he say? He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? This is verse 11. But we believe that we will all be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And Peter's like, mic drop, peace out. I'll see you later in 1 Peter. It's his last line in Acts. It actually says the whole room gets quiet when he says that. How can you respond to that? Dang, yeah. We're all equal before God. We're all equal in our need of grace. What an amazing stand for the kingdom of God and for the gospel of Jesus. I, I, I love this image. That when it gets down to it, when you cut through the fighting, the nitpicking, all that stuff, the real thing that it lands on is, I mean, we're all just recipients of God's grace. So these people up in Galatia, they haven't been circumcised. Okay, cool. I denied Jesus three times. <laughs> I think that one's worse. And what, is, what does Paul say later? I'm the chief of sinners. We're all recipients of the grace of God. These believers... In the Pharisaical school, they, they stumbled because they could not imagine of the love and grace of God apart from the righteous and ethical living of his followers. But beloved, that is not grace. Grace that is earned through holy living, through ethical, through, through following the law is not grace. Grace is favor that is unearned, that is undeserved. This is the absolute linchpin of the gospel that Jesus gave himself, that he, that he died on the cross, that he paid for our sins, that he gave us his righteousness, that he made a way for us from death to life in spite of how little we deserved. This is grace. This is the hope that we all sit in. It says none of us deserve this. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short. The scripture says in Romans that, that Jesus worked to give us salvation while we were still God's enemies. The scripture says in Ephesians that, that our sins killed us, that we're dead in transgressions, but God made a way through his grace. Romans 5 says that, that the way we know love is that while we were still sinners, Christ gave himself on our behalf. Beloved, this is grace. You don't deserve it. You don't earn it. You can't earn it. Like you're, not, you're not good enough. 
Just like the Pygmalion. You guys know that one? The play? We're brought into a place we could never get into on our own. We're raised above our station. Brought in off the street. In the midst of our mess and our dirt and our grime and our sin. And brought into the palace of the king. And brought to the feast table of the king. And given a meal we can't afford. Beloved, this is grace. Drawn to the table that we could never come to on our own. In John 4, Jesus gives, I think, one of my favorite images of the grace of God. He, he meets with this young Samaritan woman. And you can go and read this story in John 4. It's a beautiful story. And they kind of have this exchange back and forth. And, and this woman has some pretty flagrant, just kind of brokenness and immorality and sin in her life. And Jesus just like very casually calls it out for what it is. He's just kind of like, yeah, I mean, you live in sexual immorality and have like broken relationship to marriage and those sorts of things, right? And you can just kind of see this woman like, you know, jaw drop like, I'm sorry, what? It's this really powerful scene because... Jesus calls out her sin in the open air, just names it without any shame, without any guilt, without any condemnation. By the way, this is a hard one for us as evangelicals, without any call to repentance. He just says, yeah, you're, I mean, you do a lot of bad stuff, right? (laughs) And then he says, man, He should come drink of the living water of God. And he gives this analogy of his ministry, his work, the grace of God in action as a well that you can come and drink from. Living water that you can come and draw and it doesn't, you never thirst again. What an image of the grace of God. Jesus meeting a sinner who, who's so stuck in her sin, by the way, that she, 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 Jesus doesn't shame her. He doesn't call her out for this, right? She can't even go to the well at a normal time of day. She's there because when she can go by herself, away from people, away from the public nature of her sin. And Jesus says, I have, I have a different well for you. I would love to invite you to take a different kind of drink. To drink of the living water so that you will never thirst again. Beloved, this is the grace of God. See, all of us, if we are honest enough to confess this, right? We all know that we love to run back to whatever sin it is we love to run back to. And it's, it's really easy, right, if you're the person who maybe like is a little more bent toward that pharisaical school and you love doing all the rules just right and it's easy to find your identity and how well you do all the rules just right, it's really easy to push back against that. But I'm confident that if each and every one of us was actually willing to be open and honest, we could acknowledge that our hearts actually return to sin because we love sin. Because we actually find enjoyment in it. Because it numbs us to the pains of this world. We all know that our sexual sin, our, 
our overeating, our worship of success at work, our keeping up with the neighbors, our binging media, our chasing after relationships, our worshiping comforts, our anger, our bitterness, our desire for control, our fill in the blank with whichever one fits you best or whichever 15. We all know that these things don't do anything. They don't actually fix our heart. They don't actually leave us happy and joyful and fulfilled with peace and confidence. They leave us empty. They leave us still thirsty, still hungry. Imagine sitting at a table and devouring a meal, and the more you eat, the more hungry you are. Imagine drawing water from a well, and the more you drink, the more thirsty you are. And the man in the life raft in the ocean drinking the salt water as though that's going to quench his thirst. This is the image. We return to this well and we draw this salt water over and over and over and over. And I know you're in, like, I know you know this. This is what we do. How many of us have returned to these empty wells? I mean, this week. Today, this is what it means, what it looks like to live in this broken, sinful world. Somehow, our broken self, our our sinful self, convinces us again. Hey man, I know the last 9,448 times you drank from that well, it was salt water. But this time, I think it's going to be fresh water. And as much as we can laugh at that, Every single one of us goes, mm, maybe it will be. Yeah, I'll try it again. We, we do that. But beloved, we are offered grace. The grace of God that says, come and take a drink from a different well. Come and take a drink from the amazing love of God. The love of God worked out in action on your behalf through the sacrifice of Jesus, through his imputed righteousness, through the promise of eternity. Come and drink from the well that actually leaves you satisfied, that that actually washes away your sins, that actually draws you into what you were built to be. Drink deep of Jesus. Drink deep of his love for you. Drink deep of his work on your behalf. The grace of God is here for you. It is available to you right here, right now. It is free and it is for you. You cannot exhaust it. You cannot burn it out. You cannot lose it. You can't outdo it with your sin. Some of us become convinced that the way God's grace works is like that coupon book your kid gives you for Christmas. You know what I'm talking about? Or it's like, turn this in for one free back rub and you know you're never actually getting that back rub. We think that God has given us our little booklet of grace coupons and we come to him with our confession and we go, God, I'm sorry I did that thing again. And he's like, it's cool, it's cool. He tears it up. Grace, grace, grace. But what about when that coupon book runs out? What do we do when we're coming to him for the 847th time about that same sin, that same confession? How many of us in our sin, in in returning to these salty wells, we think, man, is there still grace for me? I mean, how can God not be sick of me? How How can he not just tire of hearing the same thing from me? 
I've been, I've been following for years. Like, how, have it, I mean, how, how can this still be a thing? How can this still be okay for me to come to him with this confession? Beloved, that's how grace works. It's not a coupon book. It is a bottomless well. You cannot out the love and grace of God. You cannot sink to such depths that you don't find the grace of God deeper still. There is no point when you turn to him in confession and desperation and repentance that he does not respond with an embrace. This is grace. This is how it works. God loves you more than you can possibly imagine. His love for you has a, has a depth that you cannot fathom. He is not shocked by the brazen nature of your habitual sin. He has big eyes. He can see you. He can see your whole person beginning to end. He knows the depth of how terrible you are more than you do. And still he offers grace. And still he gives love. Beloved, this is how it works. The well of Jesus, the well of living water is still full for you right now. I don't care what circumstances have brought you to this place. I don't care how much joy, victory, freedom you're finding or how dark and painful your walk is right now. Beloved, the the well of the grace of God is full for you today. The love of Jesus is available for you today. The living water, the fresh water that actually satisfies, that actually cleanses, that actually draws you from death to life, it is here for you right now. Regardless of what circumstances brought you to this place today, how can that be true? How can that be real? Some of you, if you're being honest, are hearing me explain this. And there's a part of you going like, heck yes. And there's another part of you going, that's not how stuff works. There's no such thing as a free lunch. How can can the love of God genuinely be never ending in the face of my brazen rebellion? He's been so kind to me for so long. How can it possibly work like that? Surely the grace of God is exhaustible. It isn't. This is the actual invitation Jesus gives you. He comes to you and says, here's my deal. I died for you. And I love you. And you can have life and freedom in me. That's the deal. (laughs) That's it. There's, there's no, it, no, no, no. You come to me in repentance and you receive the gift and you have it. Absolutely. That's the thing. That sounds too good to be true. Beloved, that is too good to be true. That's the kind of thing that if you got that in an email, you'd be like, this is probably spam. If a used car salesman approached you that way, you'd be like, I'm not buying this car. You're probably lying. But beloved, this is the offer Jesus hands to you. It is too good to be true. Limitless grace. Endless love, eternal life, forgiveness from sin, real freedom. This is the grace of God. 
which is why we're asked to respond in faith. Because how could you possibly believe a deal that good? It takes faith to hear that God loves you that much and go, okay, I'll buy that. That's the invitation of Jesus for you today. Not to earn his love, not to be holy enough or doctrinally sound enough or have enough days worth of freedom from whatever sin it is that plagues you, not to have read enough theology books or have presented yourself in a certain way and built enough, not any of those things. The, the deal, the thing in front of you today, beloved, is the grace of God freely given on your behalf, freely and completely and totally available for you right now. I'm going to ask Stephen to come up and sing a song for us about the grace and love of God. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to invite you guys to reflect on one simple question. God has offered you his grace. Do you believe it? Do you believe that too-good-to-be-true deal that Jesus has handed to you? I think many of us, many of us who've walked with Jesus a long time have slowly become numb to the reality of grace. As if we need the grace of God to enter into the kingdom, right? I need that initial boost of like, okay, cool, God forgave all my sins. All right, cool, blank slate. But from here on out, it's me. Now that I've got Jesus, now I've got to live this perfect, holy, complete life. And if I don't, I mean, he might take away my membership. Beloved, that is not grace. Grace is unearned and unmerited favor. And the same grace that brought you into the kingdom of God is the same grace that will keep you for the kingdom of God and the same grace that will take you into eternity. So I ask every single one of us in this space, whether you're questioning, considering if you want to follow God, whether you've been following Him for years, I ask every one of us to consider this question. The grace of God is available to you today. Do you believe that? Stephen's going to sing a song to us about how much God loves us. I want to encourage you guys to consider this question, to come to Jesus in prayer. If you need a pastor to pray with you for the next couple minutes, or after church, if you don't want to be in front of people, that's fine. Me and Jesse are both here. We're available. We'll be around. You can grab us these next couple minutes, or you can grab us afterwards. But beloved, let's, uh, let's take a few minutes. Let's consider the grace of God. And when you when you feel like you want to, let's just sing to our Jesus about how good he is to us. Amen? All right, let's pray.